Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. They laughed at us. They called us conspiracy theorists when we said that the United States government had removed Imran Khan, the Prime Minister of Pakistan, from office. But it is now as clear as a Hunter Biden bank statement that that is exactly what happened and that the proximate reason for it was Imran Khan's visit to Russia and his refusal to side with the war party of NATO in isolating and seeking a military political confrontation with Russia, which had never done Pakistan any harm. The U.S. ambassador in Islamabad was very clear about it. Remove your prime minister or the going is going to get very tough between us in the weeks and months ahead. They said that we were making it up, that Khan had been removed because of arcane constitutional issues inside Pakistan. But it is revealed in the leaked cables, now accessible by anybody on the internet, that the American ambassador met with the members of Khan's own party, members of parliament of Khan's own party, and persuaded them to lota, to turn their coat, to abandon their party, become independents, and then vote against Khan in the subsequent vote of confidence in the Pakistan National Assembly. What threats or inducements the American ambassador offered these hitherto loyal Imran Khan supporters is yet to be revealed, but revealed it will be because the truth will always out in the end. And so yet again, we here on the mother of all talk shows can chalk up at least the satisfaction that we were right and those that laughed and ridiculed us were entirely wrong. I've got to say, as usual. They laughed when we said Hunter Biden's laptop was real until it turned out that it was real. They laughed when we said the FBI and the CIA had suppressed the contents of that laptop until it was revealed before Congress that not only was the laptop real, not only was it not Russian misinformation as 54 former and serving senior intelligence figures had falsely claimed it to be, but that it contained not just the sordid truths about this crack junkie son of the President of the United States, who's not living in a hovel somewhere. He's living high on the hog at the U.S. taxpayer's expense. 
He's accompanied everywhere with the security detail that they have denied to Robert F. Kennedy Jr., imagine. He is escorted into court hearing after court hearing by G-men with guns in their fancy suits. Hunter Biden, the crack-smoking junkie user of prostitutes and cavorta with small female children in his bed taking pictures of himself while doing so. The first son of the Biden dynasty and the Biden crime family. Not only was he all those things, he was on the take from oligarchs and governments throughout the world where he marketed the brand, the Biden brand to these oligarchs and foreign governments and in return received kickbacks on a massive scale. Quite apart from the $1 million a month job he landed with Borisma, the Ukrainian oil and gas company, although he knew nothing about oil and gas or Ukraine. I wonder what Burisma first saw in Hunter Biden. Well, actually, we now know the answer to that. Burisma was just small change. The $1 million a month was a mere fraction of the tens of millions of dollars. It's all in his bank statements that were on the laptop and are now public property, having been published by Congress today. Millions from Kazakh oligarchs, Russian oligarchs, Chinese oligarchs, people all over the world, governments all over the world were paying Hunter Biden when his father was the vice president of the United States. And in return, Joe Biden wined and dined the exact same oligarchs that were paying Hunter tens of millions of dollars, wined and dined them in the White House. And of course, as we also know from the laptop, the big guy's thirst had to be quenched from these kickbacks. We know now that the big guy was the vice president himself. In one of the most startling revelations in today's papers, a Kazakh oligarch transferred the exact price to the dollar of a sports car that Hunter Biden went out and bought the very next day. And we have the receipt for the sports car with the exact same amount of money to the dollar that he had been wired by the Kazakh oligarch. Why do I dwell on all of this? Well, first of all, it's important to these European idiots that are destroying their own economies, their own societies, their own countries, at the behest of a man now revealed in American government papers to be nothing more than a chiseling crook, a thief from the oligarchy of the world. And he was not only pocketing these millions of dollars, he was bending and twisting the political power of the United States to intervene on behalf of those oligarchs in the countries that he had responsibility for. 
as the vice president of the United States. And Ukraine is the best example. He demanded and admitted it on video, the dismissal of the chief prosecutor of Ukraine. Why? Because that chief prosecutor was investigating Burisma and he was paid by Burisma in order to do so. And he did so. And the chief prosecutor was fired from his job. Why do I dwell on that? Because what else is in the bowels of the records of the Ukrainian regime in Kiev that implicates the now president of the United States and his family in criminal behavior that would see him sent to prison for the rest of his miserable, unnatural life. That's why he has dragged the world to the brink of World War III to defend that regime in Kiev. Because if the Russians were to get there and the people who know were to begin singing about Biden and the crime family, who knows where this would end. But it's not only for that reason that I labor these points. It is for this reason. Barack Obama must have known all of this. Unless the Americans don't have any intelligence services. Unless the American security services just have a big building and nobody in it or nobody in it doing any work. Barack Obama must have known that his vice president was involved in graft and corruption with governments and oligarchs across the world in countries where he had given him responsibility. So I'm asking the question, have we looked at Barack Obama's bank records? Or was Barack Obama St. Francis of Assisi while allowing his vice president to behave like Mephistopheles himself? I find that unlikely, don't you? So what crime and corruption was Barack Obama involved in? And while I'm on the subject, who was the second person on the paddleboard? Why did the blood samples of Barack Obama's second chef to die by drowning disappeared in the laboratory. A junior employee very foolishly threw them out. If you believe that, I have a bridge in London that I could sell you going cheap, cheap, cheap. Who was the second person? Why was Barack Obama sporting a black eye and plasters on his fingers? as if he had been in a fight. What were the blunt force injuries suffered by this poor, hapless chef before he drowned? And you know what? He drowned, it turns out, in 10 inches of water. Which, if true, means he was unconscious in the 10 inches of water. If he was unconscious, how did he become unconscious? Do you see where I'm going with all this? This superpower, this land of the free, home of the brave, is actually led and has been led by one gangster after another. Now, as I've often said, that's a matter for the American people. It's not my business 
if they want to keep electing or allowing voter theft to put in office one idiot, imbecilic, kleptocratic, cacocrat after another. That's their business. My business is that all the Western governments are following them wherever they want to go and taking the rest of us over a cliff. So that is now official. Hunter Biden, Joe Biden are chiseling crooks, thieves and liars and deceivers. What are you going to do about it? Well, I don't know if the American people are going to do anything about it. It's not my business. But I am demanding that my own government and the European governments take note and stock of the character and nature of the political leadership that they have dragged us along behind and attend to our own national interests and our own business. It's official too that in Niger today, the French government, in a terrorist act, attacked the National Guard of Niger and unleashed a terrorist attack by ISIS on that government and its forces. Proving, amongst other things, what many of us have long alleged, another allegation coming true in front of our eyes, that this ISIS and Al-Qaeda phenomenon is not exactly what we were told that it was. It's not an anti-Western guerrilla fighting organization of terrorists. It is actually a tool of the Western intelligence services and governments. We saw that in Afghanistan, if we were looking as I was between 1980 and the end of the Soviet intervention in Afghanistan in 1988. We saw it in Libya when NATO became the air force for Al-Qaeda and for ISIS. Actually, we saw it before that in Yugoslavia when NATO became the air force for Al-Qaeda and its associates in the so-called Kosovo, now a stump garrison statelet recognized only by the worst satraps of the United States of America, but always putting the people of the Balkans in danger of a renewed outbreak of devastating war. We saw it most brazenly in Syria, where we were the Air Force and the funder and the armorer and the proselytizer for ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the alphabet soup of Islamist extremism trying to destroy the secular Arab Republic in Syria and overthrow its government and see the black flags of the fanatics fly atop the buildings in Damascus itself. And now we've seen it again in Niger. We see the very terrorist groups facilitated in the overthrow of Gaddafi in Libya 
who have gone on to destabilize almost the whole of sub-Saharan Africa. And a phenomenon that has now reached as far south as Mozambique and other southern African states. These groups are now being turned against the government of Niger because it had the temerity to tell the French colonists to leave. How clear do you want it to be? As clear as the nose on your face is how it currently is if you're prepared to look in the mirror. France and the United States are openly making war, economic war. And now, in the case of France, actual war against a small, poor African republic that they have milked until they could milk no more for 65 years of so-called independence. As the president of Burkina Faso said today in a brilliantly simple statement, Traore, he said, France has suspended completely all of our development aid, but they've been giving us development aid for 64 years and we don't have any development. So they can keep their money and stick it where the sun don't shine. I added the last bit. He's far too diplomatic to put it that way. So this war that they've launched against Niger, how does that sit with their support for the coup that overthrew the elected president of the Ukraine, which started all this? We encouraged and helped organize that coup. But if Niger has a coup, well, the whole world's got to go to war to reverse it. The envoy for the Sahel of the European Union today said this. I'm not making it up. She said this. Our sanctions against Niger are beginning to work. They are running out of medicines and food already. Did she come into public life imagining, even hoping, that one day she'd be able to say words like those? Our sanctions are working. The people of a poor African country are running out of medicines and food already. This is the same European Union that condemns Russia over the Ukrainian grain deal, saying that it risks starving the people of Africa. But we are starving the people of Africa and boasting about how successful we have been. The word hypocrisy even with the largest capital H, does not begin to approach or describe properly the level of this hypocrisy. Catalonia cannot secede from Spain, but Kosovo can secede from Serbia. The Crimea cannot secede from the Ukraine. Do you hear what I'm saying? It doesn't Hypocrisy doesn't begin to describe the cynical depths of all of this. But the end of times 
is not just appearing in Africa. It has not just appeared in the Ukraine. Thousands of American soldiers and sailors are now in the Persian Gulf preparing for war with Iran as an armada lies in the waters of the People's Republic of China. Take your pick. Where will the next war be? Where will it happen? Where will the balloon go up? Mr. Oppenheimer, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's the mother of all talk shows. Stay tuned. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. One man who knows more than almost anyone in the world about military and security matters, but at the same time, the perfidy of the people for whom he once worked. Scott Ritter, a former Marine Corps intelligence officer and a former chief inspector of the United Nations Weapons Inspection Apparatus, a man I have known for more than 20 years and trust implicitly. He's a great, great guest. He's Scott Ritter. You've come to the right place if you want to hear some in-depth discussion on the current state of the war. Scott, thanks for uh, joining me. Let me uh, start with the uh, poll question that we have posed. Uh, is I didn't include the Ukraine because... In a way, that's too obvious. Uh, and there's a war already raging. But do you think there's going to be a war in Niger, in Iran, in China? Can we really be talking about war on all those fronts? No. I um, First of all, we, we know that the United States is backing away from uh, conflict with China. Um, uh, Lieutenant General in the United States Air Force, uh, General Hinault, has uh, briefed the White House and the Pentagon on the results of uh, consecutive uh, war games that the Pentagon has run uh, regarding a potential conflict with China over Taiwan. And the United States loses badly every single time. And his conclusion was there's no sense in getting involved in a course of action that could potentially lead to an armed conflict because it is a fait accompli going in that we're going to lose. This is why we saw Tony Blinken go to China to reset uh, relations, uh, Janet Yellen as well. Um, and, and I, I think you're going to see a de-escalation uh, in China. I mean, it, there's still 
lunacy going on. But uh, I think both sides understand that, especially after January of next year, when there's going to be elections in Taiwan that will probably oust the current um, party and replace it with the Kuomintang, which is more inclined towards a peaceful resolution of these issues, uh, that the U.S. does want to be on the outside looking in when it comes to being able to influence Taiwan politics. So I think uh, we're pretty safe there. Iran, look, the U.S. can send as many ships as it wants to the Persian Gulf. The reality is Iranian military capabilities are such that they will sink all of these ships. Uh, General Berger, the commandant of the Marine Corps, has restructured uh, Marine Corps amphibious warfare doctrine, uh, recognizing that uh, reliance upon legacy systems such as large amphibious ships is suicidal uh, when dealing with the anti-shipping uh, missile capability of nations such as Iran. So this is a show of force, nothing more. I am very concerned about Niger. We have 1,100 um, U.S. military forces deployed in a $100 million base that we purpose-built uh, in, in Niger. We're not going to give this up easily. I, um, you know, I, 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 I'm concerned about what happens if ECOWAS uh, does mobilize and dispatch a 25,000 strong military intervention force and they get their noses bloodied. Will the United States feel compelled to uh, to provide support? And uh, we could see sort of an incremental um, engagement there. I'm hopeful for diplomacy, but uh, I, 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 I'm uh, on this one. Sadly, I have to. Uh, I have to say, uh, I believe that conflict is the more likely outcome. I'd love to be proved wrong on that, but unfortunately, I, that's how I see well, it. Well, the, the, the angel of death, uh, Victoria Newland, uh, paid them a visit. They seem to have given her short shrift. Maybe she thought a bag of cookies uh, would suffice uh, to bring these uh, generals to heel. Didn't work out that way, did it? No, not only that... Um, it seems that uh, the United States is uh, scared to death of this organization uh, called Wagner. And she gave a specific warning to the Niger government not to get involved in Wagner uh, or, or with Wagner. And I, I think what, you know, I'm not here to, uh, you know, tout the uh, the benefits of, uh, of, of working with Wagner. What I am here to say is that uh, the Russians through Wagner are providing a um, an alternative to the post-colonial um, you know, uh, deprivations of uh, or predations of France and England, of uh, the United States global hegemony. Uh, there's there's competition right now for African security and more and more African nations like Mali, Burkina Faso, now perhaps Niger are leaning towards the Russians because they trust them more. They don't they don't have the same taint of uh, of the colonial uh, rape. I'm sorry to use that word of, of Africa. And uh, Victoria Newland uh, seems to be scared to death that Wagner uh, could or would get involved, and uh, it seems that she's failed on that front as well. So let's turn to the to the main uh, dish, uh, which is of course uh, the Ukraine war. I wanted to ask you about the the war of words uh, issue that uh, the mass of the people are being fed a daily diet still, even now uh, that Ukraine is winning the war that. The Russian military is decrepit and running out of this and that, cannibalizing washing machines, and uh, Ukrainian women are bringing down uh, uh, Russian ordnance uh, from uh, via tins of tomatoes thrown out of their their windows and all of this bilge. But in the heavyweight newspapers, 
in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Times, the Telegraph in London, they're actually inching closer towards the truth that Ukraine has comprehensively lost this war. And the only question now is how far the Russians are going to go. How, how, do, how is the public going to be, as it were, led from one of these positions to the other? Well, it's interesting because uh, what we're seeing at the same time that, as you call it, the heavyweight uh, newspapers who had previously been saying, actually printing some of the stories that you talked about. Uh, so they're not that heavyweight, George. They're capable of uh, you no. know, imbecilic, uh, juvenile reporting. <laughs> but, you know, they are confronted with a reality now that, that they have to adjust to. And that reality is that Russia is winning this war. Russia will win this war. The Ukraine's defeat will be... Um, uh, strategic in nature, comprehensive in nature. So at the same time they're doing this, though, we have Tony Blinken and we have Joe Biden saying uh, Putin has lost this war. Russia has lost this war. It's It seems nonsensical to have the simultaneous broadcasting of what appears to be contradictory uh, messages, but they're not. Because you have to put this in perspective of what just transpired in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia last week, where uh, I think 40 nations came together to talk about the uh, you know, Zelensky's 10-point peace plan. Of course, it's 10 points that require Russia to surrender, turn over their, uh, to Putin, to war crimes, to give up Crimea, give up territory, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. None of these 10 points will ever be implemented. And this is the reality that Ukraine was confronted with by the rest of the world who said, now you're really going to have to start thinking about uh, accepting reality, give up this territory that Russia's already occupied. It might not ever be a member of NATO. There, you know, things are things are like that. How do you get the United States, because this is a political question, how do you get the American people to accept the inevitability of a negotiated settlement? It can't be because Russia won. It has to be because Russia lost. I know it sounds silly, but if we convince the American people that an eventual negotiated settlement, even if Zelensky gets none of the 10 points, is because Russia was compelled to come to the table to accept these terms, the American people, trust me, are dumb enough to believe this and say, oh, yeah, look how good we were. We we compelled Russia to come to the table and accept these terms. But the reality is Russia is defeating the Ukrainian military, defeating NATO, and it's NATO and the United States that are coming to the table. They're going to bring Ukraine with them. Um, but it's going to be spun because it's all about spinning this. It's going to be spun that Russia lost this war. Russia realized it couldn't continue this war. So Russia accepted peace terms. But look at the peace terms. It's everything that Russia is going to be demanding. And again, if Ukraine doesn't you know, bend on this, this war will continue. And as, as you said, uh, Ukraine will lose more. And I think that's going to be the culminating point. When the military collapses, when the air defense collapses, when it becomes clear that if Ukraine continues the conflict, they will lose significantly more territory. That's when I think you're going to see Ukraine flip and accept peace terms that uh, Russia uh, is demanding, but it will be spun that Russia lost this war. Unless, of course, uh, Zelensky is removed from office before that. I've asked you this before, but the more I look at the appalling losses of the Ukrainian armed forces and the extreme difficulty they are now having in drafting off the street, uh, press ganging, uh, and, and drafting even physically and mentally disabled people and sending them to the front, the more I look at that, 
the more it seems to me inevitable, certainly in other parts of the world at other times, where a class of military officers say, uh, we, we can't do this anymore. And if the politicians insist that we do, we'll have to change the politicians. Is, I ask you again, you said no last time, but have you changed your mind at all on that? Might there be a removal of Zelensky from office? You know, uh, Politico uh, ran an article that hypothesized that, uh, but it said, what happens if Russia removes Zelensky from office? I don't think Russia is going to be moving Zelensky from office. Zelensky is the best weapon they ever had. His incompetence um, has has facilitated the scope and scale of the Russian victory. Uh, but you are right. We could be reaching a uh, Kerensky um, nineteen. 17 moment where the um where where the military just says we're done we're putting down our weapons we're moving to uh we're moving to, to kiev to get rid of the government that's uh that's forcing this this down our throat and the more these brigades get destroyed the more um it, the desperation becomes apparent all parties involved the more likely that outcome is and it that's problematic though for all parties except the military because Remember, we, we, we preface this by talking about the, the the absolute reality of a negotiated settlement. There will be a negotiated end to this war. Russia doesn't want to occupy Ukraine. They don't have the force structure to do that right now. It's not their goal. It's not their objective. They want the war to end on their terms, a negotiated settlement. All negotiations that have taken place to date have been through the, the, the Zelensky government. If you remove him, you can't predict who's going to replace him. You can't say it's going to be somebody who is suing for peace. It might be somebody who is saying, we need to wage this conflict in a more competent fashion, which then extends the war. So I don't think either Russia or the collective West, um, you know, I'm concerned about, uh, you know, Zelensky's future, to be honest, because I think that the, the fastest pathway to peace is to keep Zelensky in power uh, because he has set to define the four corners of involvement to look at his desperation he came out of you know they came out of Jeddah, saudi arabia and he was briefed by his diplomats on what the rest of the world was saying uh he went on tv and uh gave one of the most remarkably um uh farcical and fanciful uh presentations regarding crimea and how the the, the fix is in ukraine's going to retake crimea they're going to begin the process of rebuilding it repopulating it uh making it all wonderful and wonderful he had to say that because everything the Ukrainian people were reading out of uh, Jeddah said that um, the world is saying that there must be territorial uh, concessions inclusive of Crimea. And politically, Zelensky had no choice but to uh, to make this statement. But it's an absurd statement. They'll never get it. And here's the last thing. I, and I bring this up. You mentioned Oppenheimer in your lead up. Uh, today is the 78th anniversary of the Nagasaki bombing. Nobody talks about Nagasaki. We always talk about Hiroshima on August 6th, and then we forget the fact that a second bomb was dropped. Um, nuclear war is an ever-present reality. And for those people who say, hey, it's okay for Ukraine to want to get back Crimea, and it's good for the West to try and empower that, what you're saying is you want to die. Because Crimea is Russia. And if anything happens that made a Ukrainian victory over Crimea possible, there's a 100% certainty that Russia would use nuclear weapons, and then we're all going to die. So if you say we need to help Ukraine win this conflict by retaking Crimea, what you're really saying is, I want to commit suicide, because that's the end result. You'll be dead. We'll all be dead. This is why we need to push for a negotiated end to this war that meets Russia's 
terms and conditions. And it's not unjust to say that Russia deserves to get what it wants. It wasn't Russia that launched the coup d'etat in 2014. It was the CIA. It wasn't Russia that empowered the Banderas Nazis to take over. It wasn't Russia that inflicted ethnic genocide on the uh, Russian-speaking populations. Um, so I, I, I think you know history shows that Russia's on the right side of history in this conflict. War is never a good thing. It's never the ideal option. And the best thing we could do is try and facilitate the uh, conditions under which this war can come to a rapid conclusion. But it's not going to be on the terms dictated by Zelensky. It's going to be on the terms dictated by Russia. Uh, lastly, uh, I was ruminating in my uh, monologue about the, the sheer, I don't know, hypocrisy doesn't sum it up. But, you know, you talked about Niger. It is completely unacceptable for a coup to remove the elected president of Niger. But we're on the brink of World War III over a coup that removed the elected president of Ukraine, which we didn't just support, we actually helped organize. Victoria Newland was on the streets giving out the cookies. Yeah. I mean, you've been pretty near the top, Scott. You know these people. Does this double standard never occur to them? It would to me. I promise you, it would to me. Well, first of all, George, I just want to compliment you on your monologue. Um, a, I've never laughed so hard, and I've never wanted to cry so hard. Your uh, your content is is so disturbing, but your method of uh, of of, of telling your rhetoric is masterful, and I applaud you for it. Please continue doing what you're doing. Uh, and the answer, of course, George, you know this answer. You were in Parliament. The answer is. They know they're hypocritical, but that's okay because they will spin it. These are spin masters. They are experts at information warfare. They run information operations designed to shape perceptions to meet their needs. This isn't about doing what's right. This is about doing what's what supports their greed, supports their, you know, their 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 dreams of empire, their dreams of hegemony, their corruption. Uh, you've talked about the Biden corruption. And you rightly pointed out that every administration leading up to that was as corrupt or even more corrupt than Joe Biden, if that's possibly imaginable. You can't be that corrupt in power if things like hypocrisy disturb you. These are people who hypocrisy is a way of life, but they are masters of rhetoric. Not like you. You use rhetoric to tell the truth. You use rhetoric to inform. They use rhetoric to manipulate, to deceive, to lie to shape, to get a result that otherwise wouldn't be accomplished if they even had the common courtesy and courage to speak truth on occasion. I, I missed that question. If you could repeat it, we had a, a technical glitch, I think, a hiccup. <laughs> uh, good evening, George and team, and good evening, Scott Ritter. Thank you to you all for all of the hard work that you put into these shows um, and for, for letting us know what's really going on. Uh, message to Scott, my question is, America spent 800 and 77 billion on the military, on their military last year. Uh, my question is, why are they running out of weapons and why are they so slow to manufacturing new weapons or replacement weapons when they're chucking that much money at the military? Where's all the money going? Scott, it's a good question, isn't it? If I could answer that, um, I mean, I can't answer it, but uh, it, I shouldn't be the one answering it. An inspector general should be answering it. But you know what? They have. 
The United States, the Pentagon doesn't even hide the fact that over the course of the last decade, there's a trillion dollars they can't account for. They just don't know where it went. It's gone. Trillion. That's with a T, not a B. B is big enough. I mean, <laughs> an M is big enough. You give me an M, Ilian, I'm very happy. You put a B on it. A T, I can't even imagine. The Pentagon has lost a trillion dollars. They don't know where it went. Look, the United States budget isn't about national security. That's the first thing people have to understand. The United States budget is about greed. It's about corruption. We don't build weapons that are designed to help the service members prevail in combat. We build weapons to keep the manufacturers of weapons in their luxury apartments, in their big cars, in their vacation getaways. That's what it's all about. When we procure a weapon system, it takes forever. They bid low as they go in, it gets changed. It's a game that's played with Congress. Congress knows this. They accept the low bid and then they accept the contract extensions because the contract extensions are tied to factories in their jurisdictions where jobs are. More money is pouring into their jurisdiction. It is a grift on the American taxpayer to take money from the American taxpayer and use it as a jobs program to enhance the political viability of these candidates. They will never change this because this is how they stay in power. We can't build the weapons you're talking about because the defense industry is not there to do the right thing for the national security. They can't make money building artillery shells for Ukraine because it would require them to capitalize new production lines and they don't want to do that. They won't don't want to do that unless there's a big contract that they can stretch out, stand as part of a program to grift, to steal, to, 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 to deceive the American taxpayer. The Pentagon's budget is a criminal enterprise. Look, the honest to God fact is that we could slash easily $400 billion from the Pentagon's budget and have a stronger military today than the one that we exist. The reality is the bigger the budget is, the weaker America becomes because the more it becomes about enriching defense industry and the less it becomes about doing what's right for the Marine, the soldier, the sailor, the airman, for the American people. This is one of the biggest criminal enterprises that has ever existed on the planet. Um, but there it is right in front of you. I wish I could say something different. What a tour de force. This interview will live long, I predict. Scott Ritter, as always, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. What an interview. What a man. Where's the next U.S. war then? Well, uh, almost everyone agrees with Scott Ritter uh, that it will be in Niger. 67%, 65%, 61%, 71%. Only 14, 11, 20, and 11 think it will be China, and 19, 24, 19, and 18 think it will be Iran. Let's take a quick break, and then it's your calls to the hour. Stay tuned. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Here's an email from Des. Hi, George. What is it with the U.S.? It starts and creates war wherever it goes. I hope they get a bloody nose, says Des in Manchester. Now, from African Stream, the Pan-Africanist William Sakwa joins us because Africa is beginning to dominate this show. 
So William is the man to help us through it. William, welcome to the mother of all talk shows. It's the second time, I think, that uh, we've met. So I'm very glad that you came back for more. Uh, Scott Ritter and our poll overwhelmingly believe that there's going to be war in Niger. Do you share that view? Uh, unfortunately not, and thankfully so. Because I think for now, cooler heads have prevailed in ECOWAS, where sometime last week they were saying, you know, if you do not reinstate Bazu in one week, we will consider sending a military force into Niger. But then you see after Niger got support from its people, I think that that's the most important thing. The support Niger has gotten from its local population. You have the people saying, if you'd like to get to the presidential palace, ECOWAS will have to go through us. So the local population, one, supports the coup that has just taken place. And two, you have Mali and Burkina Faso who have said, if ECOWAS uh, makes an incursion into Niger, we'll consider it a declaration of war on us as well. So, you know, when you have these factors coming into play and then adding in uh, extra factors like uh, Mali has uh, Russian military advisors. So this will no longer be an... Uh, you know, ECOWAS, Niger war, it will now turn out to be yet another proxy war between uh, NATO and Africa. And uh, it's also important to realize that the organization or the group that's instigating for war to take place in Niger is the West. Like you can hear them using terms like, you know, we support everything ECOWAS, uh, you know, suggests and you have ECOWAS alongside the threat of military force have uh, enforced sanctions, have cut off electricity to Niger. But coming back to your point, I don't think war will take place in Niger strictly because uh, the people support the coup that has taken place and, you know, neighbors Mali and Burkina Faso have declared their support as well. Now, Victoria Newland uh, went there to threaten the new authorities in uh, Niger. Uh, she told them that overthrowing your elected president by force is simply not acceptable, although she was one of the prime organizers of exactly that in Ukraine. Uh, there's uh, over 1,000 American soldiers uh, there uh, based in Niger, and the French soldiers who've begun to leave have not all left the uh, country. If not ECOWAS, what about the possibility of a direct French aggression? Uh, <clears throat> I'll start off uh, by Victoria Nuland coming to Africa in the name of, you know, democracy. You cannot overthrow an elected leader uh, and walk away scot-free. And you've mentioned uh, very well, in 2014, that's exactly what the West did in Ukraine. And coming back to Africa, uh, coups have taken place. France has uh, deposed 22 African leaders since the 60s. And this is not just something that, you know, happened and passed. Uh, France has never taken accountability for it. France has never uh, done reparations for it. If anything, the installation of puppet leaders is what enables the plundering of Africa. But, you know, under this fake guise of democracy, you can fool many people into thinking the government has the support of the people. And now coming back to the possibility of a French direct intervention in Niger, uh, my understanding usually is just like the Americans won't send their own soldiers to go fight in Ukraine, in a proxy war, they'd rather someone else do the dirty work for them. And this is exactly what ECOWAS was being set up for. But as you can see, you, you know, you have politicians from northern Nigeria saying, 
uh, right across the border, those people are our brothers. You have the Hausa community living both in Nigeria and Niger. You have people from these communities, you know, within the ranks of Nigeria's military. And uh, <clears throat> again, this is what ECOWAS was set up to do. Uh, the West gods ECOWAS into fighting a war for it. Only that this time, even if they managed to walk over the Niger's military, as they say, comparing, you know, Nigeria's uh, military capacity to Niger's, they'll still have a painful insurgency to deal with. And we all know, even in French, uh, in France's case, uh, pure technological superiority doesn't guarantee success. The U.S. was in Afghanistan for 20 years, but, you know, replaced the Taliban with the Taliban. So, yeah, despite having an overwhelming uh, military uh, capability over the Taliban. The, uh, I've been looking uh, quite uh, a bit more deeply than I had before into this new president of Nigeria who uh, can't accept uh, the affront to democracy that the coup in Niger, according to him, represents. But he doesn't have the greatest democratic credentials himself. First of all, there's very serious and credible uh, allegations of electoral corruption in his own election. And it's still actually before the courts. The opposition have never accepted uh, his election. Uh, secondly, uh, the Senate of Nigeria has refused his demand that Nigerian troops be sent as part of an ECOWAS uh, invasion of their neighbor, uh, Niger. And then there's his own checkered history. To my absolute astonishment, forgive my ignorance, I had no idea that this man was a bagman for the mafia and the drug dealers uh, in Chicago, Illinois, which doesn't seem like a great qualification to be uh, the leader of Nigeria. Uh, these people who are now talking about uh, democracy in Niger, many of them don't have a leg to stand on, do they? No, no, they do not. No, they do not. Look at uh, Ivory Coast, for example. You have Watara, you know, going against the constitution and running for another third term. What's that if not an institutional coup? But, you know, he's a friend of France. Look at Cameroon, Paul Bia, being in power for 43 years, but still, you know, a friend to the democratic-loving West. Now, Tinobu himself, uh, the general perception on the ground is that He's the perfect tool, you know, if you wanted to, if you wanted someone compromised to push through whatever policies you'd like. Look at, uh, in a few weeks since coming into power, he has scrapped fuel subsidies. You now have, uh, Nigeria, which, you know, has been having fuel shortages despite being the biggest oil producing country in Africa. Now, then again, looking at his, uh, credentials back in Chicago, you know, uh, money laundering for his, uh, relatives in the heroin trade. If you are, you know, as the American intelligence community has historically done, if you're looking for someone you can dangle a knife over should they step out of line, Tinubu probably still has uh, material interest in the West. He still has, like very many other, you know, Western favorites in Africa, he still has assets in the West. This could very easily be seized if he's seen as stepping out of line. And when, once you look at it that way, you begin to understand why ECOWAS was initially taking the kind of measures it was against Niger. It was merely serving someone else's interests. Because consider what the Americans have in Niger, for example. 
the biggest drone base in Africa, built at $100 million and costs $30 million annually to run. The U.S. also says since 2012, they've spent $500 million in Niger. So for them, this is not a small investment. And again, just going forward into explaining why this coup is popular. Niger is the second poorest country in the world. Uh, and America's response to all this poverty is spending $500 million on militarizing the region. And, you know, if as a young man, you've grown seeing, you know, uranium being dug up from the ground and being sent away to power France, meanwhile, 80% of your countrymen don't have access to electricity, you're going to feel resentment. And at some point, you're going to question, you know, what role uh, does democracy play into, you know, how uh, basically the basic living conditions of people improve. And if democracy is not working, you have people now considering the military option, uh, such as military coups. Yeah. Uh, lastly, uh, widening the focus a little bit, uh, all these countries, including Chad, uh, complain that the NATO destruction of Libya and its deployment, for they clearly deployed in my own country, openly deployed Islamist fanatics uh, to overthrow the government of Gaddafi in Libya and the, the Islamization of Libya in the destruction of uh, the system that they had there before has now destabilized the whole of the Sahel. And as I pointed out earlier, somewhat to my surprise, as someone who didn't even know there were Muslims in Mozambique, there's a, an Islamist fanatic insurgency as far south as Mozambique. Isn't this the kind of Frankenstein monster phenomenon? We use these Islamist fanatics to destroy Gaddafi in Libya. And now they're on the march uh, throughout Africa. Exactly, exactly. And again, look at what happened in Afghanistan. The Taliban was initially armed to dislodge the Soviet from Afghanistan. And the end result was, you know, they came back and uh, occupied Afghanistan and reversed back, you know, gains such as uh, women's rights. And going back to Libya, uh, it's exactly the invasion of Libya that has led to the problems within, we see in the Sahel. Burkina Faso today does not control 40% of its territory. Imagine the economic opportunities missed as a result of not accessing 40% of your country, which is run by terrorists. You have these terrorists also uh, running mines in uh, in Mali as well. And if you can remember last year, uh, an official from Mali said, give me an audience with the Security Council. I have evidence that France is supporting terrorists in Mali. So, and again, you, you, you get to ask yourself, why doesn't the West also see the negative consequences of invasion, particularly Europe? Because for the Americans, you can say they have an entire ocean dividing them from migrants. But for Europe, if Niger falls, the resulting migrant situation is going to be worse than anything we have seen so far. And again, as we saw yesterday, a delegation from Mali and Burkina Faso were present in Niamey, Niger. And they basically they had... Uh, this is the main message. We saw what happened in Libya. If it happens in Niger, who knows how long it will take to get things back to normal. 30, 40, 50 years. Basically, they say, you know, we've said no. Whatever it takes, we'll make sure that does not happen here. And yeah, I think 
we should definitely like call out the West because this all benefits nobody but the West. For everyone else, it's it's a loss, especially for Africans who seem to be like finally, you know, finalizing the war of decolonization. William Sakwa, a brilliant tour de horizon. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Where is the next US war? We asked in our poll, which uh, you've still got about 20 minutes, I think. Uh, it's overwhelmingly Niger uh, for our respondents, 15,388 of you. Benia says, Asalaamu Alaikum, George. We in Africa are still colonies. We're not allowed to make a decision or take action unless what is agreed by the West and America. I think those days are gone. Peter is in Ireland, but wants to talk about Nigeria because this is the global university of the airways. Peter, welcome to the show. Go ahead, sir. Thank you very much, George. Um, I live in Ireland and I'm a Biafran by birth. Um, I want to ask one question. Thank you very much. Thank you, first of all, for giving me the audience. I've been an ardent follower, follower of your page, and I've always followed your talk show. And uh, you are highly expository. You are highly educative. And um, I don't think I first stumbled on your video when you spoke to, where you had a conference where you shredded a Libyan, a Libyan who was resident in London, who was praising the British Conservative Party and all the atrocities they committed in Libya, and I, I watched ardently the, how you shredded him and then uh, you know disgraced him. However, now what I want to ask George is, I wonder why is Biafran issue not on the front burner of the world affairs? Now, number two, uh, Mazin Namdekano is a British citizen and a Biafran who is a, a uh, a freedom fighter who is leading, has been clamoring for the freedom and for the restoration of the independent Republic of Biafra. He's the leader of the indigenous people of Biafra. He was extraordinarily renditioned in 2001 in Kenya. Nigeria committed violation of international law and kidnapped him in Kenya, extraordinarily renditioned into Nigeria. For t since 2001, he had gone through a series of court trials from the high courts in, in Abuja, high courts in Umwahe, and other parts of Nigeria. And the high court in, Niger in Abuja dismissed seven of the 15 count charges they leveled against him, and they proceeded to court of appeal. And at the court of appeal on the 13th of October, 2022, dismissed all the charges and ruled that no court, no court, nobody can try him on any of those 15 count charges anymore and ordered his release. Nigerian government has been violating his rights. He has been in the DSS dungeon, not in the ordinary correctional prison. He's been in the DSS custody. 13 feet space is what he's been occupying, less than six foot bed. He has been there. They refused him to change his cloth. He has worn one cloth for two years. The court refused to, the DSS refused that he should change his clothing. The, the same clothing he was wearing in Kenya when he was kidnapped and tortured for eight days. He's been wearing the same clothes up to today. He has, they refused to allow him any medical, medical, medical assistance. And they have kept him there in violation of the court of appeal, or that the second highest court in Nigeria. 
Everybody is keeping quiet over this man, and his only request is allow my people to have referendum to de determine our freedom, whether we want to remain in Nigeria or not. Britain conducted a referendum for people of Scotland, and Britain thinks that Biafrans cannot enjoy the same rights of the Scottish. Britain is emasculating Biafrans the same way France is holding Niger. The Biafrans are emasculated, are encircled and strangled by the British authorities. Remember, between 1965, 1967 and 1970, Britain killed, supporting Nigeria, killed 5 million Biafrans, unsung, unwritten. The entire Biafra land is full of grave, graveyards. There is no graveyard where any one Biafran was buried. Everywhere was littered with Biafran souls and bodies. Over 5 million Biafrans were killed. Never had second to the Jewish Holocaust. This man, Nnamdi Kano, has been clamoring, and the world has kept quiet. The world, has, because oil is in Biafra land, and Britain is doing the same well, thing France uh, is doing to Nigeria. Yeah, Peter. Yeah, Peter, you certainly haven't been quiet, and uh, if nobody else has been paying attention to this man's case, they certainly will now. Uh, you gave it uh, an airing and illuminating uh, that uh, was second to none, and thank you for doing that. Uh, I made the point in my monologue that some people are allowed to secede from some countries, but other people are not allowed to secede, and if they try, uh, then we'll go to war, maybe even risk world war in order to stop them. Uh, I'm not myself a supporter of breaking up African countries. I'm not myself a supporter of breaking up Arab countries. I think we've got too many Arab countries. I think we've got too many African countries. I'm in favor of unity uh, in Africa and unity amongst the Arabs. But there is no doubt that uh, the double standard to which you uh, drew attention is entirely a self-serving one. Britain supported Nigeria in the Biafran War, not because they favor unity in Nigeria, but because they were milking Nigeria and the ill-gotten gains of the corrupt uh, regimes in Nigeria were banked in London, were spent in the property markets in London, in the jewelry markets in Hatton Garden in London, and uh, so on. Uh, so uh, you've made a good contribution. I'm grateful for it. I've no doubt we'll return to the issue uh, of Biafra and separatism in Africa on another occasion. Thanks for the call. Stephanie is in Ontario. Let's hear from her. Stephanie, go ahead. Hello, how are you? I'm good, by the grace of God, thanks. What would you like to say? Um, I just wanted to bring awareness to the Coots Four. The Coots Four are political prisoners in Canada that are being held without bail since 2022 for conspiring to murder a police officer which has been a sham from the beginning. There is no evidence to prove that there was anything of the kind. Um, there's major corruption going on in the RCMP and in our country as a whole. We, these people were just freedom fighters during the convoy in Coots, Alberta. And we have another political prisoner who is right now being under house arrest in Nova Scotia 
and his name is Jeremy McKenzie. Jeremy McKenzie is a veteran. He's a dissident. He is also being ostracized. He's been debanked just because of his political views, just because he's called out the corruption at the top level of our government, of our police forces, of our intelligence agencies. And this is happening all over Canada. And I just wanted to bring awareness to this because not enough people are talking about it. And I need people around the world to listen and hear this. I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional. Well, you... I was at the convoy. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm very sorry to hear you cry, uh, but I hear it. And I hear the emotion and the arguments that uh, lie behind it. I, and this show, uh, wholeheartedly supported the convoy. Uh, we wholeheartedly denounce Barbie Trudeau and all his works. Uh, you won't have to work hard to convince us that Canada, which poses as a Barbie and Ken uh, paradise of liberalism, is in fact a grimly and corrupt, a grimly repressive state, repressive for liberalism, imagine. Repressive for progressivism, imagine. And their disgusting habit of blackguarding everyone uh, who takes a different point of view to them. As in your case, uh, in the case of the convoy, calling them fascists and Nazis and this disgusting smear uh, is, deserves total contempt. I was once banned from Canada and called a terrorist. When I was a member of parliament in Britain, it came as some surprise to Her Majesty the Queen that a member of her own parliament was in fact secretly a terrorist. So I have uh, personal experience of the hypocrisy of Canada. So you certainly have my full support in demanding justice for the members of the convoy. Thanks uh, very much, Stephanie, for that. Uh, probably the last call, Rob in Boston in the USA on Russia. Go ahead, Rob. Yeah, hi, George. I love your show. Um, I just have That's a cool. question um, that um, seems obvious to me. I don't know, but maybe you have some... Uh, uh, can shed some light on this. I, I was just wondering why, given the escalation, why Russia wouldn't make a démarche on um, France and the UK by um, shutting down, uh, closing diplomatic relations and withdrawing all staff. That would send a message, I think, I don't know, I'm sure Moscow has thought of this, um, that m what might come next. And I, I think it would fracture the... Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm just one person, you know, so it would fracture the, uh, the NATO no, alliance. No, uh, I, I, I don't know anything about uh, diplomatic relations between Russia and France, but I know a lot about the lack of diplomatic relations between Britain and Russia. And I think we're very close uh, to a formal ending uh, of diplomatic relations between Russia and Britain. The embassy is, in fact... Uh, the Russian embassy is in fact entombed, really, uh, and, uh, and no diplomatic work of any kind uh, has for the last year or more 
than the last year. Before the war uh, has been uh, possible in London, and uh, if the Russians asked me, which they won't, but if they did, I'd say that there's absolutely no point in uh, having uh, diplomatic relations with London because London's ancient hatred of Russia has effectively taken over their minds. I mean, Britain has lost its mind in relation to Russia. And I was pointing out to someone this very day that this predates uh, Putin by a hundred years and more. This predates the Bolsheviks and their revolution in 1917. The ancient hatred of Britain for Russia goes back to the middle of the 19th century and uh, goes back even further than that. Uh, from Catherine the Great, uh, the British have hated the Russians and have saw every opportunity to damage, weaken, divide, uh, and fragment uh, Russia. So there does come a point, you're right, at which uh, pretending that you have normal diplomatic relations with someone becomes actually self-defeating. And I think we have reached that stage uh, with Britain now. And I don't think that will ever change. I don't actually, because save for a few years under Mr. Churchill, from 1941 until 1945, and not even all the way to 1945, did, uh, were a tiny period of historical time in which it was routine for the British Prime Minister, routine for the British King to glorify and hail uh, the Red Army, the Soviet Union, Generalissimo, Stalin, and so on. Uh, besides that window, four years and not even all of four years, it has been a seamless story of hatred of attempted subversion, of actual invasion. How many of you know that scores of thousands of British soldiers and sailors invaded Russia in 1920 to intervene in the civil war in Russia? Invaded and occupied Archangel Murmansk and other parts of Russia sought to advance on Petrograd and overthrow the Russian government. Who remembers that? Only people who've read the books I've read remember that. Rob, thanks uh, for that call. The poll has closed. 16,028 people voted, and overwhelmingly, almost two-thirds actually, uh, of you believe that the next U.S. war will be in Niger. I've run out of time. I cannot opine for my, uh, my legendary three minutes of final thoughts because it's already the witching hour of 11. But God willing, I'll be back on Sunday at the earlier time, please note, of 7 p.m. UK time uh, for the mothership for the Sunday edition of the mother of all talk shows. I don't know about you, but I thought tonight's was a cracking show. 
with two cracking guests. And not a bad monologue from yours truly. I hope it gets the audience it deserves. God willing, see you Sunday on the mother of all talk shows. Good night.